Though many African Americans in California have long lived in major cities, Black folks in the Golden State have also engaged in land and food cultivation. In fact, in 1890, one in four Black men in the state worked in agriculture. From ranch hands to family farmers to owners of sprawling homesteads, these individuals and their families made lasting impacts on rural California. So for many years, Black folks' relationships to the land in California weren't solely defined by oppression like enslavement or Jim Crow. Instead, working the land often represented independence and economic opportunity for Black Californians. And though many Black residents of the state eventually followed national trends towards further urban concentration, especially since the mid-20th century, it's still worth thinking about these historic links between agricultural labor and independence, even in contemporary times, because food secure communities are not just ones who have all of these processed and packaged goods available for purchase, but rather ones that feel empowered to grow their own food, to create the conditions by which they can really feel a sense of control over the food environment. But what does this look like in today's day and age? How do urban residents reconnect to agricultural practices that many times were initially brought to urban environments, yet severed by structural systems from zoning laws to the systemic loss of green space? In other words, how do Black Californians in urban environments tap into historic ties between food production and economic independence as a political practice? For some activist farmers in the state, rekindling this critical relationship means actively looking to the next generation. It struck me that what was needed is a way for kids to invest in themselves. So in this episode, we'll examine how a community garden project in Oakland isn't just reconnecting local youth to the natural world and making urban gardens grow. It's also replanting seeds of economic empowerment in the process. I'm Caroline Collins, and this is the Calag Roots podcast. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming to shed light on current issues in agriculture. This is the third and final episode in a three-part series examining the often undertold relationship between food justice and other political movements led by Black Californians. This series is a follow-up of sorts to our previous six-part series, We Are Not Strangers Here, which highlights hidden histories of African Americans who have shaped California's food and farming culture from early statehood to the present. Since that series aired in February and March of 2021, the We Are Not Strangers Here banner exhibit was finally cleared to launch after cultural institutions began reopening, and it's on tour now. So if you're interested in visiting or booking the exhibit or listening to the podcast series that accompanies it, check out www.agroots.org to learn more. Throughout this series, we've shined a light on various ways that Black folks in the state have used food either as the heart of a social movement or as one important tool for larger social action in ways that have shaped notions and expectations of food justice in California. These efforts included community endeavors like World War II era cooperative markets and the Black Panthers free breakfast programs of the late 60s and 70s, community initiatives that made lasting impacts. 
Yet despite these significant projects, many Californians, including Black residents of the state, continue to face various forms of food insecurity, often due to the systemic nature of unequal access to fresh, affordable, and nutritious food in the state. So during this series, we talked to Dr. Annalena Hope Hasberg, incoming Associate Professor of Sociology at Cal State LA, to help us think through the broader relationship between inequity and food. A scholar, activist, and educator, Dr. Hope, as she's known to her students, reminded us that while certainly structural in nature, unequal access to food pathways affects people's lives on a street-by-street, neighborhood-by-neighborhood level. So in South Central Los Angeles, where I am currently living and working, and in some sections of Oakland and San Francisco, where I grew up, the foodscape is largely made up of liquor stores and fast food joints and gas stations. It's a foodscape decades in the making. So, for example, in Oakland, which is the focus of this story, as early as the 1960s, large-scale supermarkets drove out competition from many smaller grocers, causing neighborhood shops to permanently shutter. For instance, between 1960 and 1980, the number of grocery stores in West Oakland, where the majority of the city's Black residents lived, declined from 137 to just 22. But then these supermarkets didn't stick around either because large retailers and businesses increasingly shifted investment beyond city limits to growing suburbs. So, for example, by the 1990s, many supermarkets in West Oakland closed, leaving local residents with few options beyond liquor stores to purchase food. This pattern took place in urban environments across the state, where the few grocery stores that are in the region are notorious for selling these subpar fruits and veggies that are rarely organic. They're often on the verge of spoiling. However, in recent years, urban foodscapes have experienced drastic change in many areas, with new investments in food retail, including an influx of healthy options. But here's the thing. Many of the folks that have long demanded changes to food pathways aren't the ones benefiting from this urban renaissance this cruel irony of gentrification as it's taking place in these same areas is that the foodscape is improving. We're seeing new markets and restaurants and cold pressed juice bars and everything that we've been asking for for generations and looking for and wishing for. But these amenities are coming up alongside this demographic shift and this widespread displacement of the people who have been in these neighborhoods for generations. In other words, the folks who have been in need of better food amenities ironically now can't afford to stay and enjoy them. And this displacement is part of a larger history of inequity. We know that Black families were particularly hard hit by the mortgage crisis of the early 2000s. So we were losing the homes that we were able to painstakingly get. Ownership that was only made possible After decades of redlining and racial covenants that prevented Black homeowners from buying property in neighborhoods where it would appreciate in value. Exacerbating long histories of redlining and the recent mortgage crisis are also additional concerns increasing housing precarity for many Black Californians. Now we're being disproportionately displaced by gentrification and redevelopment projects. Taken together, these multiple dynamics have resulted in an environment in which 
A majority of us are renters for all of these reasons and more. And people who rent or people who are housing insecure, we don't have the same decision-making power about what our neighborhoods look like. And this is reflected in the absence of healthy food options as well. So when healthier options finally begin cropping up in urban neighborhoods, but in tandem with economic practices that price many residents out of their own communities, scholars and activists like Dr. Hope can't help but to ask, Well, what do we mean when we say healthy food? Whose health are we prioritizing? Is it the health of the market or is it the health of the community? One way of thinking about empowering communities and their relationships to food is approaching this work through the lens of food sovereignty, a term that isn't always associated with urban environments. Food sovereignty is this notion that is generally applied to the rural. So nations like Haiti, places like Cuba, places where there's more land. Rural places where food production seems more central to folks' everyday lives than it might be in urban spaces. Because at the core of food sovereignty is this idea that the people, the people who eat, the people who produce and consume food should be at the heart of food systems rather than corporations, rather than market processes. But it's a notion that Dr. Hope also asserts can be applied beyond rural spaces. My work tries to bring food sovereignty from this global, rural perspective and apply it to the urban. My contribution is what I call citified sovereignty. A concept that helps us ask, how do we create autonomous food environments here in places and spaces where we might not own the land that we live on, right? That we are in charge of stewarding. There might be way less of it, but what does it look like when we are able to govern it and cultivate it autonomously? It might look like the Actonon Verba Youth Urban Farm Project in Oakland, where young growers are using urban farming to challenge oppressive dynamics and environments, one plot at a time. Today's urban farms have roots in city gardening and farming practices brought to California by successive generations of migrants. In fact, we can view our current renaissance of urban farming as a contemporary harvest from previous seeds of social justice activity. However, despite these deep roots, for some new urban farmers, the practice of agriculture didn't just seem novel at first. It seemed downright otherworldly. I recently learned, as crazy as it sounds, that food is grown. I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, I guess intellectually, I knew, you know, the farmer and the Dell or McDonald type, but it was so abstract. I don't know any farmers. That's Kelly Carlisle. And given that she's the founder and executive director of Acta Nonverba Youth Urban Farm Project, her initial disconnect from agriculture is pretty powerful. Because today, Acta Nonverba is a nationally recognized nonprofit that's been praised by the likes of the Obama administration for its work in East Oakland. However, about 13 years ago, Kelly's journey in farming was just beginning, and it all started with a lemon. Farming and growing food was the furthest thing from my mind. I had a nice corporate job. Then the housing downturn happened. I was laid off. I couldn't afford daycare. No one was hiring. So on one hot summer day, Kelly took her daughter to a local store to walk the aisles and basically escape the heat. 
They were strolling through the store's nursery when they suddenly came upon a tree with a hanging yellow fruit. I remember standing there, staring at this tree like, I can't believe there are lemons that will grow off of this tree. I tried to pull the lemon off the tree and it was attached. And I actually got it down to look and see like, how did they do this? My disbelief was intense. Like, so you could just really grow food like <laughs> in a bucket. And my daughter is like, duh. <laughs> she was like three. Using her EBT, Kelly decided to buy the tree, plus a garbage can and with some guidance from the sales lady, some potting soil. And then she put the soil in the garbage can and put the lemon tree in the soil and like watered it for like weeks and weeks and weeks, daring the tree to grow more lemons. And it grew two more. And I was in love from that moment on. Like it was over for me. <laughs> and then I went back weekly and bought more seedlings, anything that I thought I might eat. Yet despite all her early success in her yard, she still had trouble imagining her home garden as an actual source of sustenance. But the thing is, is that I didn't eat any of the things that I grew like for at least a year because it didn't have a sticker on it. <laughs> so I would grow all this stuff and I would give it all away and then go to the grocery store and buy the stuff that I just <laughs> gave away because, it didn't, you know, I needed it to have a sticker on it. Like somebody inspected it, right? She eventually learned about safe pesticides and other best practices and even discovered her own family's history with home growing. And then we got little bugs and I was like telling my mom about my, my garden and she's like, oh, little bugs. I think those are called aphids. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, my dad had a garden. My mom's from Georgia. My dad had a garden and he was always fighting aphids. And soon she had a seriously flourishing garden. So now we have all these plants and everything and everything that I had, I tried to like put on wheels so that I could scoot it around to stay in the sun as long as possible. <laughs> and I called it the Garden of Eden, E-A-T-I-N. Before long, Kelly's garden was impacting more than just her kitchen. She realized that farming made her a more connected person and made her think about humanity at large, including how she could use her skills and resources to help others. She figured out her broader purpose in 2010 when Gavin Newsom, then mayor of San Francisco, first proposed a new kindergarten to college program that provided the city's kindergartners with $50 to start their own college funds. I was reading all the articles about it and read the comments, right, from citizens, San Francisco people that were highly upset that their tax dollars were going to these kids that didn't earn the money. Comments that were downright disturbing to her. Some of the comments were, I don't care if little Jamal goes to college. I just want my kid to have a great education. And the one that really uh, struck me was a commenter said, I wish you all would stop telling these kids that they need to go to college. The world only needs so many nuclear physicists, but we'll always need janitors. And you don't need a college degree for that. It was a comment that truly struck a chord with Kelly and made her not only wonder, who decides who gets to be a nuclear physicist? Who says that a janitor can't be a nuclear physicist? But it also made her think, 
what does this mean for a free country that some people have opportunity and some people don't? And in August 2010, she came to a critical conclusion. If taxpayers are mad that children aren't earning the money that will help them reach higher education, then maybe kids need to take that on themselves. So she devised a plan, one that didn't just harness modes of sustainability and self-motivation found within agricultural practices. Her plan also tied these practices to the collectivist spirit of the food justice movement and the long tradition of food justice work at the heart of political struggle, which in her case was using urban farming to fight for the economic empowerment of local youth. And so I started acting on Verba. But her urban garden didn't immediately meet the community's needs. I knew how to grow the food, but what I didn't know was how to make sure it was culturally relevant. Because though Kelly is Black herself, she didn't necessarily share dietary customs with her neighbors. For example, take soul food staples like mustard and collard greens that are popular in some African-American cuisine. We grew up Muslim and you know, those things are definitely not on the uh, menu, of, at least for our family, you know. We never had collards growing up. <laughs> so it was not a part of my history in the least. And that was only part of her community she was trying to reach. The community is primarily African-American and Latinx. So my idea of cultural relevance was to find plants that had a name in Spanish a tactic that didn't initially yield the best results. So I grew Epizote the first year, and nobody wanted Epizote. <laughs> and I grew broccoli and, and stuff that, like, again, that I would eat. But then folks started coming around the farm and asking what we were growing, and there was little to no interest. In fact, some people were pretty vocal in their disappointment in the garden. Folks started, like, kind of yelling at me, like, what? Where's the collards? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, <laughs> where's the mustard greens? And I'm like, I didn't even think about that. Why would I grow those things? It was all frustrating for Kelly because when launching her urban farm project, she'd held a series of community listening sessions with the exact goal in mind of figuring out what people wanted her to grow. I had these community stakeholder meetings. Nobody said, I want you to grow this. Like, that was a specific question that I asked. What would you like us to grow? And it was stuff like pineapples and bananas and all these tropical fruits. So without any kind of guidance of things that I could actually grow, I went and got what I could. But Kelly didn't give up. She kept listening, kept growing, tweaked her garden to people's needs. And before long... It became a community endeavor where youth are front and center in its efforts. And so the way we work, uh, now we have three farms in the city of Oakland that are run by youth age 5 to 15. The kids plan, plant, harvest, and sell the produce that we grow. It's a project that offers youth all kinds of important lessons. We have all these programs that allow the kids to not only be on the farm and learn about the land and how food is grown, but also how to cook it, also seasonality, and they reap the benefits of the sale of that produce. Which is a critical component of the project. Because remember, Kelly began Acta Nonverba in response to public backlash for the kindergarten to college governmental program. So that money that kids make from their Acta Nonverba gardens, 
100% of those dollars are placed in the individual savings accounts for the kids that participate. But Acton on Verba's savings program has some important differences. We're not a typical IDA program. We don't get matching funds from HUD or any government entity, which allows us to open the accounts for any child, any family that wants to participate. If we were to use the regular model of IDA accounts, what we learned was that the kids' parents had to basically not work because the income limits for those dollars are so low that even the working poor made too much money to put into the account. So we skipped that step. And now? We have close to 30 accounts open now. And some families are contributing to their children's education. And in doing so, the project shines a light on the ongoing link between food justice and broader social movements that center autonomy and community empowerment, which in many ways is central to the notions of food sovereignty we discussed at the top of this episode. We learned that at the heart of our work is wanting to impart a feeling of empowerment to our youth, right? We wanted to give kids the opportunity to plant things and notice what happens with an environment that they have control over, right? They get to plan what goes into these beds. They get to plant it. They get to come back, you know, week after week, day after day during our camps and whatnot to watch their product, their plants grow and, you know, bear fruits. And it's not just the produce that's growing. We're seeing the accounts grow. And what we're learning or realizing is that this is another form of economic empowerment, right? This is another way for kids to say, not only did I earn that money, right? And that that money is going to go to my future. But now my auntie put money in it as well. That's awesome. You know, she sees me having a future. A future that may very well be in agriculture. So we wanted to make sure that they knew that agriculture is a viable career to go into. And some of the kids don't like getting dirty. That's okay. There's work in labs. You know, you could be a soil scientist. You can figure out what these bugs are. (laughs) There's so many different things that agriculture hits. And so Actinon Verba's working to be involved in multiple aspects of food production. They're offering camps that revolve around fresh foods, and there's even hopes to one day create a cooperatively owned grocery store. All elements that Kelly Carlisle, who was once astonished by the sight of a lemon growing from a tree, now firmly recognizes as part of ongoing food justice movements in California. Movements dating back to activists like the Black Panthers and the Victory Markets we discussed in episodes one and two. We are connected to many of those movements. The Black Panther Party saw a need, right? They saw children hungry and stepped up and they made breakfast. We've seen what community love and what community care looks like through the Black Panther Party. We are honoring that in the same vein for breakfast, lunch, or sometimes dinner. When thinking about her project, Kelly ties her work to long histories where folks learn about themselves, each other, and the world around them through their ties to the land. In the context of recent and ancient history, using land as a 
tool for learning different things from economic empowerment to nutrition to climate justice. All of those things connects our work and the work of other farmers near and far, contemporary and past. In other words, our connections to food pathways are a vital part of the human experience. Part of the story of humanity is making sure that communities, families, individuals have food, have sustenance, and also have a place to set their feet and say, I've done this, you know, I've contributed to this piece of land, this program, this project, the way that this looks and the way that this feels and what the harvest is. A feeling of contributing to a larger whole that's been central to Kelly's life's work. I know that that was one of the things that made me love farming was this feeling that I was a part of something much greater than myself. The feeling of growing food and having it available to friends, family, and community made me feel like I was contributing to society in a very tangible, very needed way. And Dr. Hope, she reminds us to recognize the broader scale of these contributions and acknowledge the many ways that communities, and especially Black Californians, have continued to actively and creatively nurture food pathways within civil rights organizing, protest, and community building. I think it's important to understand the structural conditions that have shaped our neighborhoods and our foodscapes so that we can dismantle victim blame narratives. We're not just victims waiting to be saved. There's actually agency here and folks who are creatively and brilliantly working together, taking examples from our ancestors and the ones who came before us, but also using new technologies and new kinds of ways of growing food in limited space, for example, to make new realities where we are not just passively waiting for another grocery store to open up or waiting for someone to to do something about all the fast food here. And that's a central takeaway that needs to be front and center in stories of Black people and food in California, that even in the midst of structural challenges and systemic inequity. We're actively taking control of the foodscape and creating communities around what we want health and wellness to look and feel like in our communities. Thanks for listening to the Calag Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get podcasts. And by the way, if you subscribe and rate this show, it'll help other people discover it. Now for some important acknowledgments. This podcast was written by me, Dr. Caroline Collins, postdoctoral fellow at UC San Diego and CalAg Roots producer at the California Institute for Rural Studies. And it was edited by Lee Schmidt, associate storyteller and researcher at the California Institute for Rural Studies. This three episode project was made possible with support from the 11th hour project at the Schmidt Family Foundation. And finally, special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Dr. Annalena Hope Hasberg of Cal State LA and Actinon Verba founder and executive director Kelly Carlisle. We appreciate their contributions to this story. <laughs>